Listening Dog Media. DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I'm getting to do exciting stuff, and I feel like the show is evolving, evolving all the time. The early days, the first year at XFM was was the most fun. The most, I can't believe we're getting away with it. Oh no, hang on, we, we haven't, haven't got, got away with it. it. I think radio is one of your first freedoms in the fact that you finally can make choices of your own musically what you're going, going to, to listen, listen to. to. Podcasts exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a Radio 1 DJ. People like Zane Lowe became my best pal. And then I adored Joe Wiley and I was obsessed with Sarah Cox. And then the infatuation with Annie and Grimmy came along. A DJ who raised half a million pounds by completing 50 hours of simultaneous cycling and DJ. I like Comet Relief because they spread the money to lots of charities, not just one. And a music producer. I'm having piano lessons, I'm having you know, production lessons and I'm always on YouTube just like finding more things and things that I can add. Ariel Free, welcome to Her to DJ. I'm just going to correct you, it was actually £609,000 for charity. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get those figures right. Did you count it all? Uh, no, not really been a whole task itself. No, but I mean, it's it's quite something, isn't it? Because you think you've done really well, and then Vernon Kay comes along and gets six million. So, <laughs> <laughs> what next? Yes. Oh, thanks, Vernon. <laughs> I thought, I you know, that was, um, you to your agent said we gotta come up with. Yeah, that's what's well, that's the difference between Radio One crowd and Radio Two because. You know, a youngins, we want to see, keep our pennies for the rave. <laughs> I don't know, it was amazing. Um, Manchester was not a highlight when I did it, to be honest. So I'm still a bit scarred every time I go back to Manchester and Liverpool because that's where we were finishing it. The weather was just diabolical and it was awful. But wonderful thing to do and such an incredible amount of money for it. I like, I, like, I like Comet Relief because they spread the money to lots of charities, not just one, and lots of them that need it. So yeah, it was great to do. I don't know if I'd do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually. Do you know what I'm saying? I would. Just because I'm so competitive, I'd want to beat that total and put myself through more misery. But I mean, I've had a hip problem since, but we're fine. <laughs> just it. Just it problem. Have you always been competitive? Oh my God, yeah, because my brother's 11 months older than me. So I'm I'm what you get, what is it called? They call it Irish twins. It was very common back in Ireland, wasn't it? If someone had a baby, they had a baby straight away. So my brother was born in the April. My parents went to Glastonbury in the June and I turned up nine months later. So there was always this thing, even from like the init- like the initiation out of the womb was to do everything that my brother could do and was capable of doing and then do it better because that was I just that was from yeah. Did you follow his music taste? Yeah, but that's how I actually got into dance. So I grew up in Glasgow and Glasgow was obsessed with pop, happy hardcore, or R and B at the time I grew up and um I was the R and B club on a uh, pop club. So I was your spice girl steps they saw all of them, the SEC. And then as I got into my teenage years, it was all Usher and Engine, Engine, number nine. So I used to like to sneak into Nico's bar, which she'd let you in if you were under 18. They don't anymore because they're still there and I don't want them to get them in trouble. But my brother simultaneously was coming back with Positiva, like vinyls and his decks. He went on a trip to Ibiza when he was 16. When you were 16, I don't know if you remember, you used to get given a credit card because you were of age. Yep. He had a holiday for two weeks. It cost him 150 quid and he came back with a three grand credit card bill. But all he did was <laughs> talk about all this music that he discovered. And then it kind of seeped into me a bit. And then it was when I moved from Glasgow to London to go to uni. I went quite young. The minute I, I could do my hires and get down, I left as soon as I could because I knew I wanted to come to London and do something. And it had to be something with the music. 
whether it was talking about music, dancing to music or playing it. I wasn't very good at playing it. And then um, I discovered clubs. New Rave was my scene. Where did you go? Oh, my God. So the Friday night, we'd go at Club Enemy. So that was all. I remember seeing Arcade Fire there when they first started Block Party, Late the Pier, all of that. And then Saturday night was your Club Frog, and that was the old Astoria. And that was a melting pot of, like, indie and New Rave. And New Rave was only the scene that like, was around for, I want to say, like, eight months. It was the birth of, like, Klaxons and Hadouken and Data Rock. But it introduced me to what has now become my ultimate act, number one act ever, is Daft Punk. And so then I, by chance, caught Daft Punk at the two. 2007 gig in Hyde Park because I bought a ticket to see Claxons and then my friends were like you've got to go and see this duo called Daft Punk and I was clueless about them and to this day it's still the number one gig I've ever been to and that was the birth of me enjoying the rave. What were you doing for work? So I was at uni so I came down to a place called London Studio Centre so I was a dancer so I went to dance school I went to Saturday dance class and I ended up being quite good at it. My teacher at the time was like I think she should audition for the Scottish Ballet Junior Associates which is like their version of Royal Ballet Light School and I got into them and then I got into Dance School of Scotland which is like a full-time dance school but you do your exams and mainstream school stuff in, in a kind of mainstream school and then yeah I went to London Studio Centre because I just wanted to dance for pop stars on, on Top of the Pops and CD UK and then I got Harry Potter in my first year as a dancer I had to take a year out to defer and then by the time I went back I'd kind of done everything that I wanted to do with dancing I'd been in a company I'd done Top of Pops I'd danced for Will Young and Rachel Stevens and all these amazing pop stars and and I just wasn't happy because all I wanted to do was talk about music and be involved in music but I couldn't afford to do a radio uni course I got a scholarship to do my dance uni I didn't have that money you know my family didn't have that money so I kind of went about working in Harrods and everything from charity call centres, which I was so bad at, they, they fired me. I made what should have been an average of a minute call into a seven-minute call. <laughs> That's all something. And alongside this, I was trying to find out ways of getting into radio. So I started doing community stations. I did a radio production course at the Roundhouse. They're amazing because they do this courses for under 25s, £2 a week. And it really helped me understand the production side. And then alongside that was auditioning for lots of music TV and whatnot. And I got my first... Music TV job, Pop Girl TV. It would have been around 2011 because that's when I had my first Radio 1 audition and they said no because I was terrible, and rightly so, because I didn't know how to run a desk and I talked about the Maccabees, I think, for seven minutes, which isn't very radio friendly. And then every year I'd hammer their door down and then it, didn't t- it took until 2017 before the doors eventually wedged open a wee bit and then there was an opportunity to cover Adele Roberts' early breakfast show after a big weekend on the Bank Holiday Monday which is basically the quietest show in the year because nobody's listening then, apart because it's bank holiday and it's post big massive festival. And they're like, you don't really need to prep anything, so we'll just have all the live music from Big Weekend. And I got in and all the live music had gone. Uh. Uh, and so we quickly had to put the show together, me and this producer. And we got through it and it was fine and it was amazing. And then the rest is history. And that was, yeah, six, six years ago. How did you get in there in the first place? I was relentless because... I loved radio and I knew I always wanted to do either T4 and Radio 1 because for me, I was a bit of a nerd with like my exams because I knew I wanted to get out of Glasgow and I wanted to go to the bright lights of London and I wanted to be involved in music and dancing and all that stuff. I did everything I could to get the best grades I could and that meant sitting in my room studying with the Radio 1. You know, so you know, people like Zane Lowe became like my best pal and then... I adored Joe Wiley and I was obsessed with Sarah Cox and then the infatuation with Annie and Grimmy came along and I just thought 
I know how to do that. I, like all I ever do is talk about music. I bore my friends with the content of music. My, you know, and I loved going to see bands. Like my first few years in London, I just spent running around Camden and not even Hackney because Hackney wasn't really a gig scene then. It was just like Camden, Astoria, and then and then even getting the bus to Birmingham to go to Snobs on a Wednesday because it was fifty p for a vodka mix and six pound in the National Express coach. But it meant that I could go and see all these bands like Julian and the Jing Jang Jong, who I was obsessed with, and the Enemy and and editors and all that you know, like real indie boom era. And then I just was a bit relentless. I got an agent, and you know, like what do you want? I was like, I want the new music show on Radio One. That's what I want. I know that scene. I know those bands. And then I did virtual festivals on YouTube, which is the birth of kind of YouTube like content really taking off. And I just was relentless. I just every day scouring companies I could work for and talk about music with and bands that I could interview and radio stations I could work on. I mean, I did Hoxton Radio five years. I hardly ever missed a show. Every Thursday, 2 to 4 p.m., new music show. I think in those five years, I must have missed two shows. And I did it for free arranged all the interviews myself but it was a way for me to expose and highlight how passionate I was about that music and then in 2015 Ministry of Sound knocked on the door and we're like you know what you're doing you sound great and we were starting an online radio station and we've got lovely money and you can do it as a full-time job and we'd like you to be the drive time host and at the time I was DJing but I was DJing like indie parties or fashion parties or hotel lobbies and I wasn't that great as a DJ I said, right, well, if I'm going to be the drive time host of a globally recognised dance brand, you need to teach me how to DJ properly. And that was in 2015. And they were amazing because they had so many incredible DJs come through their doors. And I felt like that was probably where I started making my mark in the radio world because I really gave it some welly. So I got like Craig David on the show when he'd been in hiding for however many years and demanded that we get him to come back. And then he did a track with, you know, Nasty Boy and all these things that just were a bit of a statement, you know, and I think... I then would then send that to Radio 1 or get my agent, oh, she's doing this and she's on every day. But I really learned my technique there, how to ride a bed, how to talk to a vocal, you know, and how to be quick with my words and, and get to my point and find the funny and all that. So I think, and in 2015 was the biggest opportunity for me on Radio 1. They were really changing things up and I had an opportunity to get a weekend show there and it didn't happen. And it was awful because I found out about that by them announcing the new presenters and no one had actually told me that I wasn't getting the job and I wasn't, I didn't have any feedback and I'd been in every weekend for four months. How was that then? Horrendous. I remember crying on my kitchen floor. It was awful because I put everything into making this happen and obviously you can't help but think, well, they're letting me come in every weekend and they want me to be this good. There, there must be an opportunity there. Like you can't, regardless of them saying, no, 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 you, 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 that, those thoughts do seep in. And because I knew they needed new talent and I knew they needed new voices and they didn't have a Scottish voice. They hadn't had a Scottish voice at that point for five years. It was eight years between me and Edith when Edith left and me joining. So I knew there was a desperation for them to find a Scottish voice. So I think in my head, well, this is perfect timing. And it wasn't. And it was, and I even remember before I actually got that final opportunity, I had been told by my agent at the time, that's it, like we've exhausted every avenue we can at Radio 1. It's just not going to happen. And I wouldn't take that as an answer. So I emailed Alad, the boss at the time, and went, can we have a coffee? Just so I could get an understanding. And then he was like, I don't know, you want to come back in again? And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Literally everything I do is for Radio 1. And it was great because it just reminded me that one thing I've learned throughout my entire career is that you are the gatekeeper to your own destiny. Glastonbury this year, I got to do TV coverage. I was told for years on end by certain 
parties that that would never happen because I wasn't one of the specialist music voices on Radio 1. And I had a coffee with one of the heads off of the radio and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, it's always been my dream to be part of the Glassmere broadcast team. She was like, well, can you do live TV? And I went, yeah. Did kids TV for six years on ITV, yeah. and and they just didn't know. And it was almost until I put, I said, "Well, no, yeah." And I did this, and I've done this whole series, and I've done the Love Island podcast, religion, and I've done this, and all. And I gave them my whole. My first ever live TV job was Tea in the Park coverage for BBC Three and BBC Scotland. She didn't know that, so sometimes you'd have to make those opportunities happen where you can go. Actually, this is on my CV, and then they had no reason really to say no to me at that point, and they gave me the opportunity. After actually big weekend in Scotland this year, where I did do some live stuff with them, and they were like, "Okay, you've you've proven that you can do it," and then I got that. But it, it, you, we are all our own gatekeepers of our own destiny. Yeah. Who did you call when you first got Radio One? My mum. What did she say? It's an interesting reaction because my mum, my mum's been there with me through every edition and every knockback. And I never forget when all my friends were over. She lives in Spain. We we all stayed at hers before we went to Benicassim one year. And they said, oh, you must love that your daughter, you know, is in radio and, and performs and all that stuff. And she went, no, no. Why, why would anyone like their daughter having 90% rejection, but 10% like, yes. And I remember and every nine knockbacks to every one yes. And, um, and it's true. And I think she has always been the one that I've called first when it's been good news or bad news. And that... I think there'll always be an element of protection there, won't there? Are you obsessive in all areas of your life? No, but someone did say to me that they thought, they went, why did you never give up on Radio 1? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. And their assumption was that, that I'm a bit OCD. <laughs> um, and I was like, I don't think it's that. I just, I couldn't, I've never really thought about anything else other than being talking about radio or being involved in radio somehow or music. I. I would have said before we started this conversation that it was more about DJing as, as a club DJ than, really? than radio for you, yeah. No, I love it. I mean, I just, it's music. That is what it is. That's why, I, I mean, dancing was because I love the music. DJing is because I love the music. Radio is because I bloody love the music and I love chatting about music. So it's it's just always been music. If I could have been in a band, I would have been, but I can't sing and I just was terrible at playing the guitar. I've tried so many times. DJ. How do you find kind of regular content on radio to deal with? What do you mean by regular? If you're not enthusing about the Maccabees, say, and doing something a little bit more standard radio. So this is where I think I really, and and where Alad at Radio 1 is pretty amazing because I came in with this, like, I want to be specialist and I want to be Future Science of the Week and I want to be Annie Mac on a Friday night. And his kind of look at it was like, well, you're actually really funny. You're really entertaining. And he's like, and you're quite, you know, you're very engaging and you are also very personable. And he's like, would you say no to a daytime show? I was like, absolutely not. No, and I love broadcasting. I love, and the opportunity came for a show to, actually he created for us Weekend Early Breakfast, just to see if I would like being that more daytime. And it was great because it was four to 7 a.m. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which you think would be like real graveyard shift. But we had this like let out of the people coming out of the rave. So the first hour we called it three hour and 
anything went. We anyone could phone us. They we, they could request anything, and there was this pure freedom. And the radio was so great and naughty and wonderful and shambolic. And then we go into the daytime playlist, and it was this wonderful mix of being able to be a bit specialist and daytime. And then actually, I recently got to announce I'm doing a dance show, and I think the one and I do early breakfast at the moment, which is more you know mostly daytime and um. My everyone was like, "You're going to leave date like early breakfast." Well, no, because I'm not ready to say goodbye to everyone every day. As much as the hours kill you on early's, these you're a real gang and you have a real camaraderie and and I know that I could do anything and they'll have my back and vice versa. And I, and even from like the person who phones you and saying they're absolutely knackered to the person who wants to give you a bit of stick for your re- your music choices, I love it. Your name lends itself well to radio features, doesn't it? Free, yeah. yeah. Yeah, me and Will Best did a show together in Radio 1 years ago and we did a whole feature called The Best Things in Life Are Free. And I just thought, I peaked now. I peaked. (laughs) Tell me about your best moments at Radio 1. Wow. The highlights. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the day I finally got to have my own show was amazing. It was four o'clock in the morning, Friday morning. I covered for a year and eight months. Every shift, cancelled every holiday, done double shifts, you know, you give up everything to show them that you're loyal and you're eager and you're keen. And I remember even like, I had found points in my uh, my Virgin Airmails. So I was like, where have I got those points? And they said, you had flights to New Orleans. And I was like, oh no, but I didn't do that holiday because Adele needed cover. So I cancelled my holiday so I could cover Radio 1 for a week. So you, you get these little reminders of like, oh yeah, I didn't do that. But then I showed them, you know, I suppose my obsessiveness of wanting to be there highlights first show and I started the show with finally because I was like finally it's happened to me big weekend in Dundee this year was really special to be the kind of Scottish voice on the station and to really just from my peers to see how beautiful Scotland is and actually how lovely the people are like I'll never forget when I first moved to London people having this real opinion about Glaswegians because all they knew was Trevor from EastEnders who used to beat up <laughs> Little Mo or the football violence. So there was always this real kind of like, oh, you're from Glasgow. Whereas if any people never really, really got that. And um, and I loved being able to just shine a light in Scotland. For, so we did this whole big big weekend ticket launch and whatnot. And then I got to DJ there and, and that was pretty special. I suppose my first ever Reading and Leeds with them, that was amazing. That was the last minute thing because Maya was ill and they were like, I was there DJing. And whilst I was on site, they phoned me and said, can you come in and do the radio from site tomorrow? So I had to like, and and I'd had had a couple of drinks at my gig. So I was like, oh. So I had to get like the last train back from Reading, get like three hours sleep, get up and get a shower and pack a bag and then get back to Reading. But I also had a gig in Creamfield. So I then had to come back from after the, the radio gig to pick up a hire car to go back to Reading to do the radio in the morning to then drive up to Creamfield. But that was amazing. Me and Jordan got into the campsite and giving all the campers a stick and interview and surprising a super fan with Twin Atlantic like secret gig in their own tent and just those real special moments of yeah. I love the big events that we do. The ones that you know I've been I've been to, been to Reading seven years in a row. I was obsessed with it. So to be part of the broadcast team at that is pretty special. And to DJ at Glastonbury for them and Radio One Ibiza weekend. The first time I ever got station in 2019. It was the week that I got to announce I'd got a full-time contract. No one knew. And the first time they all got to see me was when I was in Ibiza and I was DJing Ibiza Rocks. Whoa. So it What about the best club nights you've had as a DJ? I mean, I'm very lucky. I get to DJ in Ibiza 18 weeks in the summer every Friday so that's pretty special in front of 7,000 people I suppose like milestone gigs for me was this year at Glastonbury I was on the Thursday night at the Glade I'd never 
I'd had one de- I'd DJ at Glass Me last year at the Eats Everything's History of Rave and it was great, but it was one of those only tents that was open. I just felt it was busy by default because it was one of the only things open. Then Glades, I'll put an offer in this year and I was really nervous because I was up against loads of big DJs on a Thursday. There's not the main stages on, so there's a lot of people to compete with DJ-wise. And I remember getting there and Crazy P were on before me and it was great. It wasn't hugely busy. And then they hid me under the decks to wheel me on stage because they didn't want anyone to see me in the decks. My friends got a video of it. And by the time I popped my head out from the decks, the entire place was filled to brim and I nearly vomited on the spot. And then I hadn't had a drink and I don't usually drink when I DJ, but I suddenly got very nervous and felt like I needed a shot because I genuinely had, it was almost the closest thing I've had to a panic attack on stage. And I don't know why you just think, oh, maybe I drink will help me. And it was. And luckily they didn't have any booze. So I just had to soldier on and get on with it. So I just put on these sunglasses, like these clear sunglasses, just so I could like not look at the audience for about five minutes and just figure out what the hell was happening. And as I was got into the first song, I just saw teams and teams of people like just running in, getting busier and busier with Scotland flags and screaming the words. And, and I was like, well, what is this all about? And yeah, they told me after they had to put a radio call out and shut down the stage because there was too many people turned up. And it was from beginning to end, one of the best gigs I've ever had in my career. And, and I couldn't understand why anyone came to me, why that scale of people came to me, but it kind of made sense in that, if you're a Radio 1 fan and you don't necessarily go to the club or you don't go to the rave, you would probably go to Glastonbury. Everyone goes to Glastonbury if you love music. You will probably go to Glastonbury at one point in your life. I think it was just the perfect opportunity for people who hear me on the radio to see me live. And and they stuck with me to the end. I don't think I'll ever forget that moment. How did you hone those DJ skills? Well, yeah, so when I was at Ministry, the guys there, so skilled, and you have the club and we had decks in the studio, so I would just go and practice and practice and practice and then... At that point, there's a, as I've learned throughout life, dance music that played on radio wasn't necessarily dance music that played in the clubs. And it took me a long time to realise that. So when I first started DJing, I was just playing bangers, 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 which is actually really hard to mix because you've got vocal and vocal and vocal and everything clangs and bonnet. Um, and as I've grown up, you realise what's better for the club and what's better for the festival and like and what's better for that time of day and what depending on what slot you've got. Like I am notoriously horrendous warm up because I just like going in and like big energy and I recently did an Australia tour where I had to be the first DJ on every time and the tour and it was so great because I just learned so much of like how to still give that energy but without taking away from the person who's coming on next and take and exhausting everyone by that point what is your advice for anyone in that position then don't be scared to let a track breathe when you're DJing, we're all so desperate to get to the next drop, the next thing. A lyra breakdown here and there. It's a moment of release on the dance floor. And also when people make these six minute masterpieces, by God, why are you cutting it up for one minute or two to two minutes? What just getting to the break like you know, the banging build or whatnot. That is the biggest lesson I've learned this year. You can allow the music to breathe because often these tracks are a journey in themselves. So yeah, anyone who's doing warm-up, it is terrifying and horrendous, but it is so valuable to be that DJ that just gets the groove right and builds it perfectly so that the next press comes on, they can do that as well. and they can Because if you go in, well, gung-ho, you've exhausted them. And then the next people have come on that you've got a bit of zombies on the dance floor type thing. And it's not really that fair. And there's a journey throughout the evening, isn't it? You want the tempo to get bigger and, yeah. and brighter and banging and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, I, if you ask me to do a warm up or a headline, so I'd say a headline so any day. But <laughs> yeah. it's definitely an amazing way to just add another skill to your craft, I suppose. When did you start your own night? 
Well, I used to do more nights back in London, indie nights, and just put new music on and at different various venues, a social and, and loads of wee like Camden places. But um, it's very hard. Don't make any money. Being a promoter yeah. is hard. I know it, yeah. But I always, you know, when I started getting a bit of a platform and was starting to really shine lights on artists that I loved and adore, I wanted to take that not like to another area like where I would go to to see I go to gigs I used to go to Annie Met Presents all the time to see the next big thing and see the next big DJ and that was my favourite club night and I wanted to do something similar where I could give a bit of a platform to people that I'm excited about and introduce them and, and I'm really pleased with how I've done it you know some of the first people to give you McVicker a gig in London there's actually it was the first ever London gig in LF System as well I feel like I've got a skill of getting DJs just as they're about to break and I really like going and be like here you can see them for a fiver before you have to pay 90 quid to see them in Ibiza do you know what I mean and you use your name to good effect there again with yeah f- yeah I mean why not for your mind label it's kind of iconic music term as well isn't it and I mean it's so funny because everyone thinks my f- my name is fake but it isn't and so when they see my passport and they ask for details for traveling they're like oh my god that's your real name like yeah I was Ariel Brown for five years when mum got married to my stepdad obviously and then when they divorced I was like I should probably go back to free because I'm not really related to Brian and it's worked to my favour because it's a much more interesting name so Ariel this episode of the podcast is supported by the amazing in-ear specialist Flare Audio do you have a favourite song that you think sounds best with earphones in to listen to alone my go-to track for any solo listening in any occasion is Nightmares on Wax Le Nui stunning stunning piece of work from a Smoker's Deluxe album. All right, Eric. Time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box, okay? Okay. All the questions are on 45, Steve. I'll pick one out. You say when. Okay. Okay. First, is there a secret to being a great DJ? No. I don't think so. I mean, if there is, please tell me it. <laughs> what do you think it might be? You know, you talked about the the skills of doing the radio mm-hmm. that, that you spent a long time honing. So, so do you mean radio DJ or club DJ or both? Let's do both. Reading your audience. That is yeah. a secret. Knowing how to read your audience. And, and knowing is, how to gauge yeah. how they're feeling yeah. on the text and knowing how to gauge how they're feeling on the dance floor. Yeah. That's a secret. Yeah, it works across both that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the 10,000 hours thing is, you know, kind of true of both as well. I don't think I've done 10,000 hours, though. No, maybe not. You're a baby. <laughs> so I've heard this. You're the second. Someone said if you do something for 10,000 hours, it makes you an expert, right? Well, I don't think I've done 10,000 hours. I don't know. It'd be great to know if I had. What I would say is that you've definitely put the work in. Yeah. I've worried a lot of people by how much I work. Yeah. But I think it comes from being a freelancer. You are constant. I was freelance for 10 years before I got my first proper, like, I've never had a full-time job. Well, I've had part-time jobs to keep money coming and subsidise being a presenter and a DJ, but that means you're always waiting for the next paycheck. I'm wondering where the next paycheck's coming from. So even when things are cushy, I will, I my biggest problem is saying yes to every single job because I was so worried that it was all just going to, the, the rug was just going to be pulled from it. And I still am. I hate taking holiday. What kind of regular work have you done? Charity Call Centre. Worked in the shop floor at Harrods for years. God, what's the other ones? Worked in JJB Sports. Don't even think that exists anymore. Worked in the pub, the castle in Pentonville Road. Um, I used to go to that pub. It's a great pub. Yeah. Dermot Leary goes to that pub. Yeah. Oh, God, so many. Used to fly in PR for clubs in Glasgow when I was 15, 16. And then I, mean, I, tried, I was so weird. I did loads of freelance stuff where you'd you know, fly in the street for stuff. Pizza places and 
car insurance and just all those ones that you could do flexibly. Worked in the bars at theatres. I was terrible at that. Event work with your waitresses. The, I'd literally work in Harvard's all day, go and work in this club. And it was just waitressing, but they give you really great tips. Me and my pal used to do it. And then we'd go to this place called the Mayflower in Chinatown and we'd spend our earnings and then we'd go to the club egg after and then rave all Sunday. I think the point is that it comes back to that graph that you've always worked. It's a clear message that's coming through. I think it's just working class attitude, isn't it? Yeah. And I think perhaps for you, you always had your eyes on the prize. I'm always aware that things can quickly change. Your main source of income can drop to something or you can get fired with a week's notice. And so I think for me, it's always been about like, well, do what you want to do in as many ways as you can and give yourself a standing. So if it was for a Radio 1 where to turn around tomorrow, let's see you later, then you've got other stuff to do or you've got other ways of still being able to flex those music muscles and be, you know. But I, I love working. I hate being idle. I hate it. Around Christmas time, I'm not that busy, so I have gigs at the weekend and my daytimes are generally free. And I never sleep well because my mind's racing about, right, I need to do this, I need to get that sorted and blah, blah, blah. And so, and, I, and that's, you know, and then I'm one that I've got too much on. But I've got better at saying no to things that I don't need to do in terms of like, if it's not working for my label or if it's not shining to my radio. I don't know, like, you get asked a lot of random things, don't you? on radio to do yeah. I don't necessarily think hosting a pet award ceremony is going to be like necessary to my career even though I'd love it you just have to be a bit strong and be like actually I don't think I need like to take a day off on the radio for that or to not I don't think I need to push myself to get to that gig because actually I'm a bit busy and I still even now saying that makes me cringe because I'm like what if it you know that's weird panic I probably have I guess you still get to dance like at clubs oh my god yeah I Nothing makes me happier than banging on a tune for people that makes them happy and just having the best time. And you're like this kind of rise of TikTok is so scathing in their comments. Some people, I want to say old bitter DJs who didn't make it, usually men, always men. And they've taken to going around female DJs on TikTok and just berating us. And I'm quite active behind the decks. I love music. Music is in my bones and I will dance my wee socks off behind those decks and make sure. And there's the comments you get, they're so prehistoric and, and oh, where's your vinyl? And uh, it's like, well, we've moved on. We can we can DJ with USBs and it doesn't mean I'm not working hard behind the decks. And also because I'm having a good time behind the decks doesn't mean that you can be angry with that. I'm sorry that me having a good time behind the decks, being angry, got all these comments, oh, the, card, the card's mild, they hate it. It's horrible. It's just constant. And you have to like keep that noise out. But then, and, so, and I've let it sleep in a little bit sometimes, but I'm... I just think, well, actually, you're not getting to play in front of 7,000 people on Friday night in Ibiza. <laughs> yeah. And I am, and there's a reason for that. Back is the box. Right. Question two, Ariel. Same one. Uh, go on. <laughs> Maybe you've already answered this. If you weren't a DJ, what job would you do? Maybe think about something other than jobs that you have already done. done. I'd love to work at record label. I've started producing, so I've been producing for two and a half years now, and I'm, I find the magic of seeing how things come together and how tracks are made and how people's knowledge can just make a hit or make the perfect dance for banger. So I'd love to be involved in label, whether it's signing music or finding the next new star or helping the next new artist. How is producing for you? It doesn't come natural to me. It's not how my brain works. I tried, so about six, seven years ago, I tried to start, 
producing more actually from a radio side so I could start like cutting and editing my own shows I hated having to rely on other people and then that was on Audacity which I kind of got my head around and then I moved on to Ableton Ableton just like in terms of making music just I could not get my head around it and then lockdown happened and I was like right I'm gonna give this a go and a good friend of mine who's an amazing producer was like try Logic your head's not getting Ableton try Logic and it just clicked I I'm terrible with my lingo. So I'm often, I don't know the like professional terminology for a lot of the like equipment or the lot of like plugins or software. I'm trying to find this sound that I've heard in a track. I'll phone up a minute and be like, how do you make that disco tune, that disco sound that sounds like an alien shooting a bubble gun? And he goes, you what? Like, do you know what I mean? And I'm like, you know the one that was like, that? and he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, is it synth? Or is it? And I'm really annoy all my friends and luckily they have the patience to put on my mood but they get they get that I love it and I'm passionate about it. I just I'm nowhere at the level that I want to be and as someone as I've mentioned I'm quite competitive I'm very impatient I love learning so I'm, I'm having piano lessons and I'm having you know production lessons and I'm always on YouTube just like finding more things and things that I can add because as, as you get older you get a bit more forgetful you don't retain information as well I wish I'd learned how to produce at a much younger age because I feel I'd be much more skilled I think it takes a lot longer the older you get but that's not to say you can't do it. And I've had six singles out this year, which I'm all incredibly proud of. Some I've had help with, not others I haven't. And I'm very honest about that. But I do love when I'm in the studio and I'm making something and it absolutely slaps and I'm excited to play it in my sets. How does that feel? Mad. Yeah. Nerve-wracking. Like I had a single called Feels So Good, which is a big gospel house number. And the gigs that I'm playing were a bit more club an underground I was like how is this gonna work but it was just this perfect track that it really builds so it was great to play at the beginning of a set and just see the change and the energy of them when it gets that real huge like gospel like drop it's a real hands in the air moment and there's there's something quite like wow I get emotional I cry quite a lot during my sets um <laughs> it's mad to say that but I do I'm a very emotional person I wear my heart on my sleeve it's quite incredible to see people with their hands in the air singing along to your chins or even the kids love putting their phone's up, yeah. saying, play this. Your next question from the book. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Okay. What's the most famous you've ever felt? Oh. Oh, I don't think I've ever felt famous. I don't really think I... I don't, I don't know. I don't think I've ever felt famous. I like privacy. So I like being able to walk down the road and people not know what I look like. Do you think you handle getting recognised okay? No, I'm terrible at it. And my friends had to have a word with me once because this kid came up to me and was like, you are real free. And I was like, yeah, why? Like, I just am not very, not used to it. So defensive. No, I know. So yeah, I was like, yeah, why? Like, what, like I was in trouble. And she was like, mate, you need to sort that out. Like, you can't, that can't be your response, people. I don't think I've ever felt famous. And I, I like that. I've seen what fame can do to people. I don't really want it. <laughs> I like, I'm, I'm, I made a conscious decision to move away from TV stuff. Because I felt quite uncomfortable in front of the camera. I'm comfortable when it's about music. But I felt quite uncomfortable. And I, I think it comes from actually really enjoying people not knowing what I look like that much. I think that's really surprising. Why? Because all of what you've done has been on a stage. or like, yeah, it's mad, I mean, isn't it? It, it, it? Broadly, I mean that too, you know. Your, your life has been in the spotlight. Yeah, it's funny. I think it, there was definitely there was a, a point where it changed. I thought that's what I always wanted to be like the big 
music broadcaster, the new, like, you know, Greg James at Glastonbury or the Brits host and all that. And I would have time when I was up to any of them. No, but I think I was doing a lot of TV that to get me on Radio 1 to help get me that audience. And what I was finding, I was just going back and scrutinising myself, looking at myself, oh, my God, I'm so fat, look at my chin, oh, my God, why did you say that? And I often say things and like without thinking and sometimes it doesn't come across what I'm trying to say and we're quite sarcastic in Scotland and some people can take offence to that and not realise it's actually joking and all that but I think it's just as you get older you you get to be a bit more stoic in what makes you feel comfortable I started feeling not very comfortable in front of the camera I, like there's things I, I'm happy to do but also I was quite happy to be like actually I don't really want to get on a plane and like someone sit and talk about me do you know what I mean? I think a lot of it came, and, and, and I will say, and I've talked about this before, a lot of it came from when I was on Love Island and what happened with Caroline. Because I was with her when we were part of the series when everything happened. And I think I couldn't believe the switch, the complete 180 of people's attitude towards Caroline based on what they were reading, a lot of it not being true. And the way she was torn down from being the nation's sweetheart to being a woman who was stripped of her job and her purpose and her dignity. And I think I, I think it shocked me. And I'll never forget the day I got that phone call about her passing. And I, I think it was so close to what we were doing. We were doing the podcast and she was one of our biggest champions. I think it, I'm, it was at that point, I thought I never want to be in that position ever, ever. For, for that complete U-turn of people loving you to instantly vilifying you. And so I think that's probably a lot of the reason why. And I'm quite happy for that to be not part of my life. I think it can really hurt people and kill people. It did. So I think that was probably a, a catalyst of it. Yeah. It feels less contradictory now you've explained all of that because I think the way that your career's gone, it feels like, wow. Look at all that you've achieved. But actually, the more you talk, the more grounded you seem. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, my mum's a scouser, so I'm, like, I can't, can ever not be grounded. I think, like, it's just, I never take anything for granted. But I'm also in, I'm in a comfortable position now where I can say no to things yeah. that don't make me feel comfortable. Everyone says about you, this is the first time we've met, mm -hmm. we have a lot of mutual friends, and the one, everything, everyone says the same thing. You know, she's really fun. Me, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I feel like we, you know, we do we do early shifts. I feel like I lost a bit of my fun with a three m alarm, and I yeah. get really sad about that sometimes. But I then also too. other times, I'm a bit like, actually, I still have a lot of fun. Like my job is fun. That's why I don't really take a holiday because my job gets to take me to amazing places. Into the box for it's question four now. Okay, let's do it. Which do you prefer to play, clubs or festivals? Festivals. Festivals. I love a club, don't get me wrong, but I love going big at a festival. I love, I love the melting pot of tribes at festivals. I love that you can win over a garage head and a house head and a pop head and there's all these challenges because you're up against so many other people, but also people are just at festivals to have a good time for that weekend and that moment. And I, I was always a festival girl. I went, I, I've always been festival. I mean, I was conceived at Glass and Race. I think it's fun to do that. Yeah. Festivals by a mile. I love playing the club, but get me in a festival field any day. Mm. One last question for the book. I'm fine at festivals. <laughs> You're always fun. <laughs> <laughs> fun girl free. Oh uh, yeah, fun girl free. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, one more last question from the book. Okay. Okay, this is, when have you thought, I can't believe this is happening? Glastonbury, great set. And also, walking onto the stage at Hamden Stadium for Calvin Harris in my hometown of Glasgow in front of 44,000 people. Tell me about that. I got a phone call. Do you want to play Hamden Stadium? Why? Because it's in Glasgow and you're doing really well and I think it'd be great if you supported us in the gig. And that was that. Tell me about going from your dressing room onto stage. Well, it's funny because there wasn't a clear path. It's Hamden Stadium. It's not made for gigs. They walk onto the pitch, don't they? They don't walk around it. So they had to take me right up to the top of the stadium and they had to walk me all the way through. And of course, all the kids have had their pre-drinks and they're all mad about it already and they've all got their flags and they're ready and they're... And they were just bouncing and then, you know, they'd put two security around them and us weechies, we don't like that kind of farce. You know what I mean? But, but who are you? Get back in your box type thing in the stage. I mean, so I remember like just being tiny because I'm only 5'3", walking through the two security and they're walking me straight and no one else is allowed on stage. It was just me. Usually you can have a manager, you can have, you know, your social media person and whatnot. And I was walking on my own shaking because you can just hear the voices like echoing. And, you know, you've got your MK had arrived and the LS system as well were playing. And I was just like, this is going to be, ah, oh. all these kids are just bouncing me. Oh, where are you going? And the security's like, watch where you're going. And there's all just this noise and havoc. And, and then, oh that's Ariel oh Ariel plays this tune and you know it's all just it was just everything I love about Glasgow you know and the way the way Scottish crowds go for it there's like no other place in the world you see this wave and they're all in unison and it's like it is like watching like the kind of most stormy of seas just bouncing around and I remember putting a video up and it was patched up and it was a huge DJ and he was like bloody hell like look at that crowd like you just you don't witness anything like that anywhere I've never seen a crowd move like that and that's because they're all mad with it so it was it was fantastic terrifying and also it was so lovely because my grandpa it's the only gig my grandpa's come to see me do oh. so when I got the call they like, you only have five guests and I was like meh I'm from Glasgow and really I've already phoned my grandpa and I said look I'm, I'm DJing Hamden I'd really love you to come and he goes what Scotland's National Stadium and I went yeah because he's a massive footy fan and I went what are you doing that for and I was like well Calvin Paris is DJing he's asked me to support oh well why what's that is he that big DJ and I was like yeah and he's like would you want me to come for it and I was like I'd like you to see me DJing and then yeah they said you're gonna have five and I, and I remember messaging Calvin being like look is there any chance I could have more guests? I said, my, my cousin's mad. I've got everyone who want to come. And he just sent an email and said, she can have whatever she wants and make sure our grandpa's got the best spot, the best seat. And it was amazing because, God, I've gone well up because my grandma passed away. And I was quite, when I moved to London, he said to me, he was like, your grandma would have been so proud. God. Um, so, yeah. Did was, you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. And then he turned around and went, oh, my ears are ringing. <laughs> And they were still ringing the next day. So, yeah, I think that's probably one of my proudest achievements. Ariel, they were your five questions Thanks. from the box. God, we went everywhere, didn't we? <laughs> I All know. the emotions. And now you cry. And well, I know I'm not bubbling. Um, um, I've yeah. got one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records oh on Earth. Oh, my God. What would they be? <gasps> William Orbit's Adagio for Strings. Soul Central Strings of Life. Yep. Because that's big party number. And then I'd probably do 
because it's my mum's favourite song, and I love that it's my mum's favourite song. Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. Thank you so much, Ariel. Great, thanks. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.